Hello, welcome to the fandom and themes in RPGs panel. I am Michael Duxbury. I'm a top role player for the past eight or so years. And I wrote the Alignment series pitch for Targo Press for the Hill Folk system, which is about the sorting hat and the alignments and how they're silly. But more relevantly to this, I also, in my spare time, enjoy writing system hacks uh, for tabletop RPGs such that I can use it to play games in my favourite fandom. Yes, it's something uh, that I've got quite a lot of experience doing during uh, the time that I've spent running or designing uh, tabletop RPGs. Designed game content and then played games of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Men in Black, Lovecraft, Star Wars, Firefly, Batman and the Three Musketeers. Also designed game content but not run games for Person of Interest, The Fast and the Furious, Black Mirror and It Follows. We have a whole panel of other people who have various experiences. Okay, starting with you, Dan. Yep. I am, well, I've been working in the industry for 17 years. And currently, I'm the lead writer on Judge Dredd and the Worlds of 2000 AD, the role-playing game, which is probably one of the biggest sort of fandoms I can think of. I used to hack together from various different game systems anything I could get to, to do with Judge Dredd game. So I've run a lot of Judge Dredd in the past. I'm trying to remember how many years now I can't think. So basically, I'm here to sort of offer my input from a professional side of how to work within a fandom. Because when you're working with things like Judge Dredd, Doctor Who, even Lone Wolf with Joe Diva, you're working with in that genre and you have parameters you have to work within when you're working professionally. If you're doing homebrew, you can do what you want. You want to put Batman in Firefly? Be my guess. I'm not going to tell you all. If I want to put Batman in Judge Dredd, Rebellion are probably not going to tell me off. But if I want to put Buffy the Vampire Slayer in Judge Dredd, I'm going to get a red pen. So yeah, I've been designing for 17 years. I've worked on, as I said, Doctor Who, Judge Dredd, Lone Wolf. I'm the lead writer on Savage Worlds, Shantar, for Sean Patrick Fanner, and I've done a bunch of other things. So that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Thanks, Tom. Do you want to okay. go ahead, Richard? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a pissery Richard. Uh, I do have some kind of relevant background in it. I used to write Warhammer novels. I do theatre and I've adapted uh, some fandoms to the theatre. I've done unofficial versions of Veronica Mars, Riverdale, Gilmore Girls, Inside Out, and Big Bang Theory. And I also co-host a uh, design podcast called Across the Table with Rick and Rob. And I'm a founder of The Pipeline, which is an indie RPG community. And I'm the former coordinator of the London Indie RPG Meetup Group. I'm Ed. I am the lead creator for Shades of Vengeance. I'm coming at this from the self-publishing route. Um, so we're a very small publishing company. At the moment, we're only publishing my games. We've got some of the IPs, IPs that I can't quite yet talk about, but I can yeah, definitely yeah, talk yeah, about how to start looking at applying for IPs, how to uh, sort of follow that process through. In terms of my own games, I've actually done seven games all across different genres, low fantasy, high fantasy, sci-fi, survival horror, uh, modern, I've done it all. So I'm much more on the, on the how, do you, how do you make your game fit the theme side. I'm John, and I'm trying to decide whose gaming group I want to join after this. Right now, you're in the lead. I have been a writer, according to my passport, for 20 years now, professionally, as in actually making money off of it and living off of it. I, for the longest time, did comic books and TV episodes. My actual job title, <laughs> I was told, was Pet Writer and Dialogue Coach, as in a writer would turn in a massive script, and the director would say, that's nice, but you can't write villains for crap. John, please take a look at this and rewrite every piece of villain's dialogue without changing the content of the story. 
it didn't pay well, but man, it was fun. I come at this panel more as someone that's had to practically deal with it of, I wrote comics for years and then suddenly I had to adapt that into changing an existing fandom and an existing writing style into writing tabletop games for this man, who pays way better than those guys ever did. I'm not all that sweet tabletop role-playing money. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, all those TV point. writers, they're yeah. like, when I, re I know I've really made it when I've got an RPG. Yeah. 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 So the way we were uh, going to spit things down, talking about different ways in which you can approach designing a RPG for your favourite fandom, was to look at it from perspectives of going down the official licensing route of being part of a team that is working on an official licensed game from a less official standpoint for something that you want to design to play with your friends. And there's a couple of routes you can go down for doing that. I can provide some insight from uh, adapting a different uh, existing systems for your favorite fandoms to play in. Whilst Richard is uh, looking at things from the perspective of designing your own nano game from scratch. Let's start by talking about officially uh, licensed RPGs. So uh, <laughs> supposing there is a specific TV show or comic book or movie that you are interested in. I vote we call it Riddick for right now. I vote we really, really don't, oh. and I'm going to hit you later. Oh. <laughs> so, anyway. property X. <laughs> so, you know, you, you have a property, you want to approach it. There are various different ways that properties are held. There are some which are held by the original creator's estate. Those tend to be a real pain to get your hands on. Uh, as, a, as a primary thing, uh, Conan's a good example, Dune is another good example of two things that have being discussed with me recently. Because you need Estates. to find the granddaughter of somebody that's been dead for years on Facebook and go, can I have your phone number, and not have them think you're a creep. <laughs> they often do have agents that you can go through, but also things which are estates are generally considered, I'm not saying this is always true, I found that it is generally considered by the rest of the family to be something that's happened and they aren't interested in talking about it. It's not universally true, but it has been in my experience several times. You've then got the individual company, say Warner Brothers. Say you're going after DC superheroes, you go, uh, you go to Warner Brothers. Um, you can find their phone number online very easily. You can phone them up. You can ask to talk to the relevant department, and you can get through to the right person and start getting and start talking actually really very easily. The actual company that owns it is probably the easiest possible route because they are looking for ways to make money off it. Warner Brothers, for example, is always looking for any way they can make money off their property. So the, the third way is when you end up with an individual, for example, John already said it, Riddick. So Vin Diesel owns Riddick. His family actually deals with that, not his agent. So you have to sort of have the contacts to get through. You can usually find someone who knows something, but that takes a lot of looking in general. That's kind of, those are the three main kind of IPs, ways of approaching IPs. Okay, so that's the way that a uh, company that's in the business of procuring licenses might mm. go by doing it. For most of us who don't run tabletop RPG companies, um, you're more likely looking for a way to become a part of that project that someone else has already done the, the legwork of about the licenses. So Darren, we'd like to, uh, for a bit of context, first of all, uh, explain how it was that you came to be part of, for example, uh, Judge RPG. Yeah. Early on this year, I had a phone call from Angus Abranson of EN World and Chronicle City, he said to me, we've got a role-playing game project coming up that I think you'd be really interested in. 
you've liked it on Facebook, but I can't tell you anything about it. Are you interested? <laughs> this could be, you know, Power for Girls, the role-playing game, could be anything. I had no clue. You know, in your head, it's, is it Star Wars? Is it Star Wars? Is it Star Wars? Is it Marvel? You go through all the big licenses. Sure, yeah. And for some bizarre reason, I completely missed out 2008 and yeah. Judge Dredd, which is stupid because I'm a huge fan. It couldn't be Doctor Who because Cubicle 7 has got Doctor Who. So, about an hour later, after I'd said, I'm provisionally interested, the phone goes again. It's Angus. I've decided to tell you what it is. You're sitting down. Ooh, that, you know, that's, that's a fairly good sign. It's Judge Dredd and the Waltz of 2000 AD. We have 150 rebellion intellectual properties that we can choose from, including Judge Dredd, which includes Nemesis the Warlock, ABC Warriors, Strontium Dog, Slave, Rogue Trooper. You could pretty much say a Judge Dredd or a, a 2000 AD property, and I can probably tell you, yes, there is a chance we could create a setting book for the role-playing game based on that. So that's how I got involved with, with Judge Dredd. Sure. literally a phone call. A phone call from the, the guy from, who from, uh, from from the license. The um, are there the any license. projects that you've worked on that, for example, people who don't have that direct personal contact with someone who's prepared the license, uh, how they... And these fun people might uh, go about becoming part of such projects. Well, um, was your same experience with uh, To uh, be Doctor honest, Who? with Doctor Who, yeah. I was at a con in Swindon. Okay. And um, Don from Cubicle 7 and Angus were talking about Doctor Who. And Don turned around to me and said, you're a fan of Doctor Who, aren't you? Particularly the first Doctor. I'm like, yes, how do you know this? Oh, Angus told me. Angus knows a lot of people. If okay. you want to get into a role-playing game, talk to Angus. Is Find Angus and Bradson. Yeah. Okay, right. You can't miss him. He's got, yeah. got L'Oreal Timothy hair. Okay, great. So that, <laughs> yeah, it is literally almost, okay. in my case, it's who you sort of... Okay, cool. No. So the glib answer is go see Angus. The uh, <laughs> more complex answer is uh, I guess. find someone yeah. who's connected to that project and to talk to them about it and see if there's any hope. I think like conventions, uh, like Perfect this one, place. obviously a great place to uh, meet people who are involved in those kind of projects. Uh, my experience from going out on the floor, speaking to various people out there, is that they are very keen to talk about the properties that they're working on, often very open to uh, new ideas. So Michael, can I just throw another another yes, another avenue do. here? Yeah. Is that I encountered at Dragon Meet last year, is I went over to the guys who were talking about Elite Dangerous RPG. And I asked, how did you get the IP to Elite? And they said, they told me it was a Kickstarter uh, tier pledge to, you got, the, you got the rights to write a novel set in the Elite Dangerous universe. And so they said, would it be all right to write an RPG instead of a novel? And the, 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 the Kickstarter guys said, yes, it would be. And so they then ran their own Kickstarter to fund them getting that Frontier. pledge level. <laughs> <laughs> Dangerous RPG. Yeah. Are, are there any? Were there any stretch girls on the Elite <laughs> Dangerous <laughs> I RPG there was. Kickstarter? Okay, cool. But yeah, and then they were there at Dragon Meat, Big Sand, with all the Elite Dangerous IP. It was amazing. Fantastic. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the one other thing I would say yeah. um, is uh, go out if if you are an aspiring writer who does not have Darren's <laughs> rather <laughs> impressive CV when it comes to to RPGs, like me. Um, then, then go out and talk to the companies because most of the companies are on the lookout for someone who's enthusiastic about stuff, you know, and wants to do a good job. If you're not massively picky about what you want to work on, but you want to get into stuff, 
talk to people around in this convention, talk to us. Um, a lot of a lot of companies these days have some kind of IP project going on. I think it's fair to say, and you know most of them are looking for some kind of help in some way. So don't don't just automatically assume they'll come to you, or, or that you should must know Angus for this to work. <laughs> Though it helps. Yeah. It, it helps. helps. To help. And you, um, and you also don't need to be a professional writer. Yeah. Nope. You become a professional writer as soon as somebody pays you for something you've written. Yeah. Yep. I can vouch for that one. We have a question from the floor. Um, another, like, it's half a question, half an observation, which is terrible, <laughs> and I, I usually hate it at panels, but like, um, some, in terms of uh, Kickstarter stretch goals, mm -hmm. I've found, I know people, and it's happened to me, that sometimes manage to get in touch with uh, game creators who were launching a game and, uh, you know, get into writing something for that game by proposing a stretch goal. Have you encountered any of that? Like, like it's happened to me for writing custom playbooks for a recently released Power by the Apocalypse game. Hmm. And uh, have you have you encountered any of that? Have you? Uh, I haven't, but I think you're right that um, when uh, people are trying to do Kickstarters, especially Kickstarter, uh, which turns out to be more successful than the creator had originally imagined, the expectation on that platform that there are going to be stretch goals uh, continuously produced is uh, something which I think does present a great opportunity for people to jump on a project like that. A common problem with Kickstarters for RPGs, in my view, is that the desire to have so many stretch goals means that, that there's a constant mission creep. You're constantly needing to generate more content, which means that the more money you pledge, the longer you'll have to wait until you see the item that you actually pledged for. A great way to counter that is to expand the size of your writing team. So I think that is a, a great way of going about doing that in a way which doesn't detract from the uh, shipping of the uh, core product. In fact, uh, we actually had this in October. We, uh, we ended up being a Kickstarter that was more successful than we expected. I think. So a few years ago, we produced a, my first role-playing game was called Era of the Consortium. It's a science fiction game. Um, and we decided in October last year we were going to do a, a Kickstarter to create expansions. So we sort of set it up for three expansions, and we were like, okay, maybe we'll make four or five. Eight expansions, stretch goals later, um, I, I turned to John and said, John, John, what are we going to do? He said, oh, I've got this great idea, we can do this. I don't know exactly where that idea came from, but, um, but yeah, no, we, we, we ended up... You can't up... Dr. Pepper, more than likely, speaking of. <laughs> yeah, we, um, we ended up uh, creating a, a, something that was not originally planned, because, you know... One of our existing writing team came up with the idea, but equally, I've also just recently, a couple of weeks ago, had a, a message on Kickstarter from one of my backers who said, you know, I'd really like to use your system to do this. How do you think it would work? You know, can we, can we talk about it and, and, maybe, and maybe progress that in a certain direction? So yeah, I mean, it has happened to me. I'm all, I always welcome ideas because at the end of the day, we're writing the books for you guys, for you guys who go out and buy them, enjoy them, play them, want to see more, what do you want to see? Well, we think we know what we want to see. Is that also what you want to see? And that's, that's where Kickstarter feedback comes in. But I'm also keen to uh, talk to John at this stage about the issue that's just been talked about of being a professional writer and the expectations that come with writing for tabletop RPGs and how that differs for writing for other uh, forms of media. Especially writing about something that has an existing fandom. Mm. 
A lot of times when you're writing something, you either have the guidelines, the story bible of the original thing. Uh, I was talking to Darren about the legendary Dropbox is what is now referred to at, a, at our uh -huh, booth. Yes. Um, I don't use uh, Dropbox. I've had to lose a few too many things on me. I've switched to Amazon Drive. But a lot of times with an existing property, you have this existing thing that you can refer back to, as opposed to a lot of times as a writer, if you're not writing fan fiction, you're kind of out on your own, which means you are God and you can do whatever you want. Whereas being a professional writer means you actually give up that and you go back to know whose shoulders you're standing on. And you're not standing on the shoulders of the property. A lot of times you're standing on the shoulders of the fans. And whether they hold you up or not, uh, that red pin you were talking about mm -hmm. depends a lot on your love, your passion for the property and how deep into the property you want to go. As a writer, I got to tell you, bury yourself in what that stuff is. Live it, breathe it, drink it. The original writer for The Force Awakens, um, he point blank said, uh, you're going to have to give me two years to write that script because I'm going to have to bury myself in Star Wars in order to do it. Abram's response was, well, we're just going to toss out the expanded universe so you can get through it quicker, but hey. Okay. Um, quick question. Um, you know, I said pre-existing property is often a, a writer's bible, but with a fandom is a problem that you only got the original material and it's not organized and you're just like, hey, here's a bunch of comics. Um, you either create your own, which is typically what I do. Uh, I have documents upon documents upon documents that way expand beyond anything Ed has, even with it being his own baby, that I have to match, to match how my brain works, mm. which is different in and of itself. I'm sure you can vouch. Oh, yeah. Um, create your own. Even if there is an existing timeline, an existing reference information, Darren might disagree with me on that, but create your own because the things that are important to you, and also in dealing with fandom, uh, like say you're going to write for My Little Pony, since I've noticed that. I don't know if that's yeah. A lot of times you're not dealing with the canon so much as you're dealing with the fan companion. Yeah, sure. Yep. And you also have to be aware of that. There's a name for every background character in My Little Pony because it has been seen over and over and over again to death. A lot of that also falls into Judge Dredd, as I noticed talking to uh, Tony, that there's stuff that he knew about characters in the background that me reading it for years didn't know, because he is that much more passionate about it than me. They will go out, they will make pages, they will make Facebooks, they will make fanfics. Know whose shoulders you're standing on. Moving on then to looking at things, uh, not from the perspective of uh, designing for an officially licensed game, um, but designing for your friends, essentially. Uh, a game that you want to uh, run with them, which I think is something that me and Richard have a bit more experience with. Um, as I mentioned at the start, um, for me, uh, the easiest route into doing that is to look at uh, systems that already exist um, and make tweaks to them such that they're suiting the property that you want to be uh, gaming within. Um, and I have a bit of a process that I go through in order to do that. The first of the three steps for me is looking at the property that you want to adapt into a role-playing game uh, and identifying the key features of that property that you think you want to see mechanically represented in your game. And having that mechanical representation is important because that's a great way of making sure that those kind of stories are things that you actually see in play. Now, John has just talked about when you're immersing yourself in a property, uh, trying to identify uh, absolutely everything and make sure you know as much as you can. Uh, which is obviously very important for you to design something for the fans. 
I think that's important too, but I also think that when it comes to be designing content for it, once you've got everything, it's really useful to narrow down, to try and uh, reduce that to uh, what about this property is most distinctive, is most important, is most necessary to make sure that the stories you tell at your table are going to match the stories that you expect to see on TV or a movie, depending on what property it is, comic books, literature, etc. That can also be different things for different people. Something which I'm sure people who've experienced writing fishy license games struggle with is trying to design a game for people who have very different, often strong opinions about the property uh, that you're adapting. Whilst if you're designing for your friends, you can design for what it is that you think your view of the property is. So to take a property like, for example, Supernatural, that can be something which could be a monster hunting romp driving from town to town, standard urban fantasy stuff. Or you can put the focus on it as a relationship drama uh, between family members, which is also something that some members of the supernatural band find very important. The second step is, for me at least, to try and find a system that already hits as many of those mechanical priorities as possible. To save you work, to build on the chassis of what uh, professional games designers have already done. So often that means uh, finding a game system out there which already matches the genre, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, genre is not necessarily something that cannot be hacked. But, but things like systems or uh, fandoms that already have a lot of combat in them, finding a game with a quite robust combat engine is often a good place to start. Ditto for relationship mechanics or anything that you want to introduce in your game uh, to add narrative complications or a story beat baked into the structure of them. And then once you've got that system, ideally something that you already know well as well, it's just a matter of matching up what it is that you see in the property, what already exists in the game, filling in the blanks, and designing rules content that is going to allow you to experience all of your key mechanical priorities, even if they weren't reflected in the original game. One of the reasons I think it's very important to narrow down in the first step um, is because I think it's a common mistake to try and design rules for absolutely everything. Um, and then you never encounter any. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, even 5%. Yeah. You end up with an unwieldy, unplayable playset. And in trying to focus on everything, um, it dilutes the priorities of the game. You end up with something that doesn't feel like that property. It feels like an amorphous mass. Equally, if you start, you have your game. I, I should say, as a, by way of introduction here, my first game was actually a game I designed for my friends that then grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And I have many stories about that that are not relevant. But um, I, I did a very similar thing. You know, I started with what was, what was important. I figured out a system that I liked. I tweaked that system quite significantly, although it was quite genre different. I started with World of Darkness and then made a fairly combat heavy game. Okay. Which World of Darkness is not particularly, in my opinion. Well, not when I played it. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it depends on the players, huh? And then from there, you then, if you find something that, that you need that you haven't made yet, you can always increase. You know, you'll have a week between sessions, you go away, you come back. Okay, I've come up with rules for this now, so if you still want to do that, it's doable. That way, you don't have the, the completely wasted time, but equally you can be adaptable enough that you can expand it. To give a very quick example, because I'm keen to get uh, to Richard, about the uh, process that I've just gone through, an example of what a work-through version of, my, of that might look like in short. Let's take Men in Black. The noisy cricket was one of the greatest weapons ever created. Oh. You agree with me, don't oh, you? damn right I do. Yes, it is. <laughs> so in approaching making a tabletop game of this that I wanted to run for my friends, the starting point was focusing on 
what this series really is about. I think Men in Black is interesting for its uh, synthesis of three genres. I wanted to see those three genres reflected in the game that we weren't allowed to play. Uh, science fiction, comedy, and buddy cop, all of which I think have a crucial role in making Men in Black what it is. So when it came to the second step of finding a system that uh, I wanted uh, to use uh, for that, I ended up going with the Savage Worlds system. It has a bit of uh, crunch and combat to it. I knew I wanted dramatic shootouts and car chases to be uh, a part of the game. The fast, furious fun of that system would be a good way of delivering on that. And that, for example, the science fiction part of the game, which can effectively be illustrated by simply having options for different aliens, having options for different weapons, because things like the noisy cricket are something that people expect to see in the games with distinctive rules for it, is already well catered for by Savage Worlds having you choose from a list of species you want to play. You choose from a chart of guns that you want to be equipped with. And I was confident that that was going to be a, a, a good fit uh, for the science fiction expectations uh, of a Men in Black game. I wasn't so bothered about the comedy side of things uh, mechanically because I was playing with some very funny people who were doing that themselves. <laughs> there are ways to do mechanics and comedy, but it's very difficult and a whole panel itself. But something that after a few games of uh, Men in Black I was concerned was missing was that buddy cop element. Uh, always challenging in the context of a tabletop RPG, which has, you know, five players uh, in this instance. And for the third step, designing a mechanical content in order to fill in the key priorities of the property that weren't already reflected by Savage Worlds, I took some inspiration from Hunter the Vigil um, with the concept of group experience points, which are spent not on talents to improve your character, but are spent on improving your team. Um, special abilities which only work when players are working together in concert. For example, good cop and bad cop in interrogations, or driving and riding shotgun in car chases. Uh, special abilities which the team has to purchase together in order to get their benefit. Um, and uh, designing rules content for that ultimately meant that I ended up with a system that did everything that I wanted uh, the uh, Men in Black game to be based on the key priorities I set out at the start. So that's a worked through example, but there is another way designing from scratch rather than building uh, on work that other people have done. Yeah, so you can, if you're writing your own uh, role-playing game, you can obviously write the big fantasy heartbreak in the thousands and thousands of pages. I, however, am a busy man. I have a seven-month-old uh, son, and my, t my writing time is kind of limited to my commute in, in the morning and in the evening. So if I'm writing more than a thousand words for any kind of role-playing game, then there'd be a damn good reason why. And most of them, most of the ones I've written are kind of rocking in about the two or three pages or obviously for things like the 200 word RPG competition, they rock in at 198 words because I need to leave room for the title. <clears throat> so I'm going to tell you about four different approaches. Now these four different approaches you can use individually to create your, like your, your, your fandom nano game, or you can combine them together. And if we have time, we'll try to do that at the end with the 18. So uh, the first one I'm going to talk about is, just as Michael was talking about, was what actually inspires you, what attracts you about this particular fandom. Because if you can write a game just about that, just about what interests people, then to be honest, you probably don't need the rest of it. So uh, I'll give you an example from one of the ones I've written. I went to see Inside Out, the Pixar movie, and I came back and I was just enraptured by that movie. I came back to my, I, I tried not to be moved, but I was still moved by the end of it. And the thing that had gripped me the most about it wasn't like the platform sections, 
you know, kind of like running around the different islands and so forth. You could absolutely write a role-playing game where you take the role of one of the emotions and you're trying to overcome obstacles and so forth. But what captured me was the, the idea of the core memory and the lesson that came out at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, that the core memories were not just a single emotion. As you mature, as you kind of enter into adolescence, is that they become a blend of different emotions. And so I wrote that night, I wrote this uh, like two-page game called Memory Ball, which was essentially one where you start off with every single player writes down, uh, represents an emotion, and writes down a particular memory associated with it. And then they grow up and they get rid of one of the memories and they focus on, they, they rewrite some of the other memories to bring in different emotions. And you build and you build and you build until you're left with one single memory with all the different emotions kind of tied up together with it. And that then becomes your your identifying memory to create that character. And that was all I needed for it. I didn't need anything else to encapture what I had found attractive <coughs> about that movie. The second thing is, again, as Michael talked about, the core of the genre of the fandom. So not necessarily what attracted you, but what what really sits at the core of it, like the single defining me mechanic. And the example I'm going to give you is I did a, I did a, a game uh, based on Riverdale, so the new TV series. And the core aspect, so it's called A, a Town with Pep, but the, the core mechanic, the core, like uh, the kernel of that show was essentially the, the, this wholesome American town with a sordid underbelly. And that was essentially became the essence of that game of any time you needed to resolve something, you rolled a dice or in this case, 2d6, and it told you whether or not this, whatever was uncertain in the game that you're playing, was it going to be resolved in a wholesome manner? Or was it going to be resolved in a sordid manner? And then that became the core of that game. Similarly, I did uh, one for Veronica Mars as well. And there, the kernel of it for me was this fact of, was this aspect of family secrets. Yes, it's also a detective show as well. But for me, the, the thing that interested me most about it, or what I found at the core of Veronica Mars was this concept of family secrets. And so I said, every single time you put it, you put yourself at risk, you have the possibility of incrementing your your family dirty laundry so as soon as that hits a certain threshold then you're kind of you're taken out of the adventure because something has been suddenly revealed about your family right and it essentially means that you need to deal with that right now and you're taken out of the taken out of the adventure the third thing i'm going to mention is the genre constraints one of the things that's often missed is that there is a big difference between how the stories you create through most role-playing games versus the stories you you create in a tv show or in a movie so sometimes the genre constraints themselves can be all you need in order to create your, your role-playing game. So a game I'm working on at the moment, which is called Lizzie and Darcy, which is obviously a, a Pride and Prejudice game. And there the constraints are on the characters. So these characters could not just, you know, Lizzie could not just walk up to Darcy and say, hey, you look like a bit of all right, fancy a date, love. You know, they are, they are the, your characters are incredibly limited in a way that actually most mechanics in most role-playing games do not, do not restrict you. Typically in a role-playing game, your character can do what you like, and then you just roll dice in order to determine how successful you are at it. But in this, like for me, the Pride and Prejudice thing was about how these characters are constrained. And so what I gave them was then uh, you, get, like, a, 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 you get a hand of cards, and those cards mean different things. So the suits mean different things for different characters. So if you're playing someone like, uh, someone, uh, like a, a young woman like Lizzie, then most of the cards mean that you can mention something about you, like an observation. You can say an observation. If you get a special card, like an ace or something like that, then maybe you can make a, 
a positive action and actually go and do something that defies conventions, but only if you have an ace in your hand. Uh, contrarily, someone like Darcy, like most of his ones will be, you're not allowed to make uh, observational comments so much. You're not allowed to display kinds of emotion. And so therefore, most of his regular decks are, you may take a positive action and only with an ace may you actually make a, an emotional action instead. And then finally, the fourth one I want to mention to you is the structure. Now, especially when you, most kind of classical role-playing games, focus upon what the players, as in, the focus on giving the PCs things to do, giving the PCs actions, and they rely upon a GM or a DM or an MC or a keeper or whatever to provide the structure of that show. And it's very easy to go and create, to go and give somebody, and I'll use, I won't go into, the, I won't work through the whole A-team example, but if you can imagine... If you can imagine somebody, do, somebody giving you an A-team role-playing game and saying, here are the rules for shooting people, here are the rules for building your amazing vehicle, like your cabbage fur or whatever, right? here are the rules for face seducing you know, the person asking for help or whatever, right? go nuts. And of course, in the first game, what they do is they encounter the bad guy and they trail the bad guy back to his, like, the evil property developer, right? and they trail him back to his skyscraper and they shoot him. And it's like, uh, okay, I mean, I gave you all the tools that the A-team have, but you didn't follow the structure of the story, and you've come out of it feeling unsatisfied, because they haven't had an A-team experience. And so you can also build your role-playing game, especially a small role-playing game, to provide that structure. And so the example I'm going to give you is Gilmore Girls. So I watched an awful lot of Gilmore Girls while my wife was pregnant. And what I realized was that they, they have a very clear structure in that show. Like the, fir the first one is that everybody, is, uh, everybody can't get away from each other. So all the characters are so heavily linked together that you, could, they can, never, you can never have a series with the grandmother or with Rory or with uh, Lorelai in a different place entirely. You know, they always need to be together. They can't escape each other. So that's, that's, like your, party. that's your rule one, yes. And then your second rule, and what I noticed about the structure, is that there is always one relationship that has a problem. There's always, there is always one dilemma that is impacting one relationship at a time. And if you watch the episodes, you realize that when one of those dilemmas, when one of those arguments is resolved, another relationship goes out of sync. So that, was then, that, that then became the structure. And so those are, those are the four different approaches. So what in, what, just, just what appealed to you? What's the core of it? What are the constraints of the genre? And also, what is the, the structure of the genre? So, and then the final, thing I'll, the final thing I'll mention, so my thumb, in order to build your own game, you need to read widely or you need to play widely. Because to begin with, as I did, you just borrow mechanics. Like most of the games I've written myself are just a series of mechanics that I borrowed from other places. So, but unless you have played widely, unless you've played lots of different sorts of games, you're never going to expose yourself to the different ways that things can be resolved. So play widely, read, read widely, and then just pick like the one or two mechanics to get you started and then build outwards from there if you feel you need to. Yeah, I think the point you made, especially in the, the third of those points, uh, with regarding... Uh, constraints. Yeah, constraints, yeah. and how a lot of great ideas for game mechanics can become from the uh, constraints of the characters in the context of the story that existed. But I think interpreting that in a more meta uh, consideration. I, I think just generally a headline of uh, constraints read creativity is something that very much applies from a designer's out of character uh, perspective. And whether that's the constraints you have when you're designing a nano game, where you're wanting to do something uh, focused within a limited uh, 
scope. space scope uh, for rule writing or limited time to mm. write it in, or whether that's working for an officially uh, licensed property and yeah. you're dealing with the restrictions of your license or the yeah. expectations of an existing fan base. Um, all of those restrictions are a great opportunity to spark creativity and inspiration, which you can then turn into making your game. Alberto? I'll break the eyes. This time it's not an observation, it's an actual question. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, and it's for Darren. Yeah. It's, it's not a sneaky observation. No. Hidden as a quote. No, no, no. It, do you oh. not think that? Darren. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. um, it's, we've, we've heard a lot from, from your side, we've heard a lot of maybe more of the structure of the industry. And uh, we've heard a lot more thinking more in terms of indie or, you know, working for your group of how you how we actually get on to doing that. Do you follow a similar process when you approach and writing games for an IP? You know, do you follow this kind of process of what things the fan want, what things we like, the constraints? Do, is, is this your brain, your thought process yeah, as well? Yeah, I think that process is part of my job as well, because when you work for something, let's, let's go to Doctor Who. When I was approached to write the first Doctor book, there is not much material available for William Hart. So, for a start, you've got to look and narrow down. You've got to find all the material you can. I had to buy three separate research books. It took me six months alone to research the first Doctor Source book for William Hartnell. So I had to buy these books, but then I had to go through them, the same as this process, and narrow down the bits and pieces of each book that were relevant to some Hartnell's era and then build from that, and it was not an easy book to write because of that very thing, there was nothing really out there. So every time I approach working for an IP, like with Joe Stray, I have access to um, Rebellion's complete comic archive for working on the Judge Dreadball playing game. That's the double sword. And it's, <laughs> that's the you sit there, it's like, okay, Case Files 1, I need to go through this particular graphic novel collection of Judge Dread stories to write this particular part of the Judge Dread book. Okay. Three days later, I still need to go through this particular part of these, this thing to, to write the book because. I'm interested in where it all goes, but also I'm a big fan of Joe Stred and I've just been given a kid in a candy shop situation. So I have to get my writer's brain on sure. and go, yeah, I'm a fan, but I've got to be a professional writer and focus down because otherwise I'm going to spend three weeks just reading Joe Stred and I'm going to get nothing done when they say, have you got anything written yet? And you're like, no, I, I'm just researching. I'm in the research phase of this particular document and I have a bunch of notes. I actually have, this story is awesome, this story is awesome, this story is awesome, <laughs> picture of road jewels, this story is awesome, lawgiver, and things like that. So yeah. yeah, it is definitely a similar process that a professional designer should go through to do, especially a, a fan, and think of the fans, because people, I'm a fan of Doctor Who, and if someone presented me a source book, the first Doctor, that does not have key stories in it, and does not have key things about William Hartnell, I am going to know, and you're going to know, if I don't put a noisy cricket in a many black role-playing game, you're going to go, where's the noisy cricket? So you've got to appease or, or please the fans yeah. and stay within yeah. the genre constraints that you're given, like with Doctor Who. I can't put anything in from future eras into Hartnell. Whilst acknowledging that, I guess, that because different fans have different expectations yeah. for the property and for the genre, 
no no product is going to please everyone. That's and right. Therefore, you want to put your own personal spin on things as well. Which, if you think about it, it's yeah. like with Judge Dredd. Yeah. We are excited and we're terrified at the same time that <laughs> you know, we're going to bring out this book and people are going to go, oh, don't like that. And to expand that slightly beyond the scope of uh, tabletop RPG in regards to the, the archives that uh, you get from access to the property, um, I suspect you probably had similar experience with uh, writing for yeah. the Black Library. Uh, the yeah, the, I mean, novels. the the stuff that I wrote for the Black Library was the. I mean, I wrote a bunch of stuff, but actually, the thing that is best remembered is a short story that I wrote about a particular Space Marine chapter called "Size of the Emperor." Now, the Size of the Emperor had a tiny, tiny role. So, when the Tyranids were introduced properly in Advanced Space Crusade, the sides had this tiny little role in there that were basically like these are one of the chapters that were nearly wiped out by. Uh, Hive Fleet Kraken. We were, I was asked to, to write a short story for this com- uh, com- uh, compilation that we were going to call Legends of the Space Marines. And I thought, well, this is kind of a legend. And what I, uh, and basically I kind of Googled around for it and, and I found so much love for the scythe out there from this yeah. tiny amount of background. You know, somebody had a big website all about it. Like a whole bunch of people had like, like put armies, like had ideas about how they might have survived and so forth. And so I pitched and it was accepted like one of these stories about how the size might like what actually happened in more detail to the size, how how they might survive and going forwards, and it is and it is the thing that is best remembered as a result. And I tried to pull in all the theories just as potential because obviously in Games Workshop you're not really allowed to say anything for certain. You know the emperor is dead, the emperor is alive, right? the emperor is the star child. No wait, we can't call the star child anyway. Um, so I tried to pull in all these fan theories as possibilities. I even actually named one of the remaining Space Marine Forge Masters after the guy who ran the website. <laughs> right, because, you know, you, you, from a fan perspective, you've held the faith for that long, for like 15, 20 years or something like that, and you get this first glimpse of more background for your thing, and it's, you know, as official as anything is in, GW, in the GW universes, and then you see your name in it as well. And, it's like, and it just gets you all the more... Uh, sponsors and like the word of mouth and so forth and it also gets you the most criticism as well because because the, the basically the, the story involved a space mean having an existential crisis about whether or not they should destroy themselves in like in, in, in one final all loving battle and uh, one reviewer wrote um, like space marines do not get depressed so I was like oh my god <laughs> which made you depressed yeah, because, yeah he, no. was, he was depressed you know anyway he'd lost 900, 900 of his battle brothers yeah anyway so, so yes. Warhammer 40 came into ever painted for the size of the Emperor Space Marine. Really? Yeah. Did not look good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the first Warhammer miniature anyone ever painted yeah. ever looked good. My first one was a Blood Bowl miniature and I painted with oil based paints. Wow. That was how long ago it was. Excellent. Home roll. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Alright, thank you for the question. Sorry we wandered somewhat around the scope of that. It was uh, amusing. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. So you mentioned the differing difficulties in working with. A property in which you have basically nothing, well, very little to go on the William Hartnell stuff, and then working on Judge Dredd when you've got an almost endless yeah. list of sources to go on. Which would you say is the harder, from the point of view of a writer, having to expand around not very much, or having to condense down? I, I think John so must answer this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so well, yeah. yes. I actually want to hear what Darren thinks. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. I'll go first, and I'll go second. Yeah. Sure, to me, as a writer, one of the hardest things to deal with is a blank page. Nothing more intimidating than a blank page. While you do have to deal with this massive amount of structure when you go after an existing IP, especially something that's monstrous, um, 
having something that has so little to feed off of and you end up searching websites for small little myths about little things to see what you can pull in. Because a lot of times fans will create their own mythology around stuff. That is about the only way to handle a blank page in a lot of ways when you're dealing with existing IPs. Uh, going to the, the thing of that you're building for basically your own role-playing group. Knowing your audience is one of the most key things ever. Josh Whedon very famously said, I didn't write, or I didn't make the Avengers movie for the fans. You couldn't. Um, but yeah, for me, the blank page is the harder part. Whereas if you have the structure, then you, you got to read through it all and you got to stop writing, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing ever. Um, it, it at least gives you something to build on the back of. Yeah, I can, I can agree with that. I'd say probably the blank page is the worst. Being given access to an IP. Or, or specific, like I said, with William Hartnell, of having very little. You can't even go, I mean, you can go to YouTube and you can watch, what, one or two, three, four stories, maybe, with a reconstruction there or read a script. There isn't that much detail. So that's your, that's your horrible blank page. Because you can go online and you can look up William Hartnell, but 80% of the stuff you'll find has been generated by fans who have interpreted what they've either remembered or heard about. So you've still got that blank page. When you got Judge Dredd, that role-playing game is a gift because everything I love is there and everything I need to know is there. If I need to know a specific judge in a specific storyline, I can go to the Rebellion case file on that particular storyline, read through it and go, yeah, I remember Judge Cowan. He put the wall around Mega City 1. But we're starting in 2099. Oh, that hasn't happened yet. So Dread is fresh on the streets. Yeah, so case file one. So I can look at that and I've got everything. So yeah, I definitely agree with you. The blank page is the worst. I slightly disagree. Oh, only really? slightly, only yeah. slightly. Yeah. slightly. You need to create your own IPs. That doesn't count. <laughs> but in seriousness, if you have the basics, and actually that was what you were saying, about how you had the basics of the sides of the emperor. You had the basics of it. You had this, this concept mm. around it. And you built your own thing on top of that concept. You know that that was a, that's often a tremendous opportunity for you to make that fandom your own, right? Um, if if stuff does not exist, you have the space. And and of course, it was what you were saying earlier. You need the blessing of, the of course to be able to go. Well, yeah, you know, I need. I've yeah. got this blank page. I've, I've got this idea. I can, can we expand do this? on it? Can I do this? And they either go. Yes or no. And that depends a lot on which IP it is. That depends a lot on which IP it is. But, I mean, to a degree, it is actually quite fun to have, <coughs> perhaps not a blank page, but a page with a few lines on it that you can then build on and put your own spin on. Yeah, something we've not talked about that much, because obviously uh, being faithful to the IP that you're working on is such a uh, responsibility, especially for uh, officially uh, licensed RPGs. Um, is the excitement that is the scope of designing an RPG to potentially create more content within that universe. There are characters in the Buffy the Vampire Star universe who have surnames because the people designing the RPG called up Joss Whedon and asked what it is, and that is now in the RPG book, and it's canon. Um, I would hope that someone at this convention of how many thousand per people has come as uh, the Inquisitor from Star Wars Rebels, Jason Isaac's dark side character. The Inquisitorious, as an organisation, was created in the West End Star Wars RPG. Yep. That's now a part of the continuity of Star Wars. Um, 
So, uh, yes, I'm we're, sure we're, Blank we're Page time. is on, oh, on time. So, thank you very much for coming. Thank you all for the members of our panel. And thank you for running it.